We are at All Souls College with Dr. Charles Stewart, reader in anthropology at the University College of London, who has just finished delivering a series of lectures here, namely the School of Anthropology at Oxford University in association with All Souls, hosts an annual Evans Pritchard lecture every Trinity term with a distinguished lecture, and this year it was Dr. Stewart. Uh, he held a series of talks under the title Dreaming and Historical Consciousness in Island Greece, uh, during which he presented some fascinating ethnographic and historical material on the island of Naxos. I'm Anna Renitovic and I'm an MPhil student uh, of social anthropology at Oxford and today I meet with Dr. Stewart in All Souls to discuss some of the issues that were raised during the lectures he held here in the past three weeks. Dr. Stewart, you've been uh, working on the history and anthropology of Greece for more than two decades on a range of uh, topics, one of them being the phenomenon of dreaming. Could you tell us firstly how uh, you became interested in Greece? What is it that drew you uh, to study this uh, country and uh, subsequently uh, the activity of dreaming? Okay, well thank you. And I studied ancient Greek and Latin as an undergraduate uh, in the States and uh, as I was completing my classics degree, I was more interested in ancient Greek probably than Latin, and I was always better at modern languages, spoken languages, than, uh, than the dead languages, the classical languages, always hard to keep um, in mind because you don't hear them spoken, so they're extra difficult to learn and command. So I asked my teacher if there were any versions of ancient Greek that are still spoken, and he suggested that I go to southern Italy to study the Greek speakers of South Italy, mm -hmm. where, where still today there are, there are Italian citizens who speak Greek, and the argument is, and the debate is, where did they get that Greek? Did it come from the ancient world and is a continuous survival? Or did it come in later migrations in the Middle Ages and the early modern period? So I ended up writing my undergraduate dissertation about this topic, and basically I established that the dialects uh, spoken in southern Italy are dialects of modern Greek. And from that point I just kept moving towards modern Greece. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I found that I had learned a, a dialect of modern Greek. And I had had this experience of basically doing field research because I had gone around with a tape recorder to collect samples of their language and their stories and so on. And I even had a chapter in my dissertation about cultural continuity as well as linguistic continuities in the area. So following on after my undergraduate degree, I had the opportunity to travel to Greece and I spent a whole year there, during which time I learned modern Greek. And I ultimately decided, I had been a classicist, that in order to do what I wanted to do, which was to really understand people and how they lived and how the societies changed over time and, and uh, what connections they might have had with an ancient past, that I needed to have a theory of, uh, of society and culture, theories of society and culture. So I was on a Greek island and I applied mm -hmm. to Oxford University and that's how I became, an undergrad uh, became a postgraduate um, in anthropology and I took the diploma course at Oxford University. And I, again, I just kept going forward from there and I, I did my DPhil uh, here at Oxford University under the supervision of John Campbell, which was also one of the, you know, one of the um, contingent factors, this constellation of coincidences. He was the best anthropologist of Greece, I think, 
uh, certainly of his generation and the best available supervisor for Greece, he happened to be right here. <laughs> so I met him during the course of my diploma year, which is now called the Masters, I think, mm -hmm. uh, or Master of Studies. M is there still an MST? Uh, there is an MST, yes. Uh, yeah, MS MST, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so it was that equivalent, but it, the diploma was the precursor to the MST. I met John Campbell, and the, the rest is sort of history. I went <laughs> on into doing modern Greek anthropology, and I did field research on Naxos. Uh, why Naxos? <laughs> if I can ask my own questions. <laughs> it's, um, because during the time that I traveled in Greece, in that year, after between being an undergraduate and enrolling as a graduate student, I had learned to speak Greek in a village on Naxos. So when it came time to select a place to go for field research, I had had a very good experience on that island, and for the project it could have been in any number of places. So I chose to go back to Naxos, but I selected a different village that was higher up the mountain. And I wrote that study, and it became the book Demons and the Devil, mm -hmm. and it is about um, kind of spirits and demons that belong to a realm which the church does not consider to belong to Orthodox Christianity. So from the point of view of the church, these are superstitions. Mm -hmm. And from the point of view of the educated sector of society, well, they're folklore. In other words, kind of substandard knowledge, but things people know. And I did a study of that, and as I said, I, I, it became a book. And as I was doing the index for the book, I was on the word dream. And I found that I had really a lot of entries for dream, maybe 10 or 15, mm -hmm. which really surprised me that a number of the accounts which I got about these spirits, which could be um, female kind of spirits that um, steal infants or cause women to miscarry and uh, vampires and spirits of the earth and so on. The encounters that people had with them were often in dreams. But I hadn't problematized that state or that concept of dreaming and what they, you know, the role of dreaming in Greek culture. So I thought it's a time, you know, the time has come to study dreaming more centrally. So what is the role of dreaming in uh, a Greek culture more generally, before we go into the specifics? Mm. Why, why is dreaming so important uh, to Greek culture and, and everyday life, if mm. it is? Right, right. Um, well, um, dream, dreaming is important, or at least everybody, everybody dreams, every society, everywhere. Um, many people don't remember them, but also many people do. So dreams are a phenomenon, human phenomenon, everywhere. And they're of variable importance everywhere. Um, in our society, they're, they're demoted in importance quite a bit and considered to be you know, very bizarre or somewhat irrelevant personal phenomena. That's, that's one discourse. Mm -hmm. And then there's an entirely other discourse which says this is prime material for figuring out the personality and the, you know, the actual you know, reality of your you know, personal subjectivity if you take a kind of psychotherapeutic mm -hmm. or psychoanalytic approach. So they're either the royal road to the unconscious, as Freud said, or else they're completely froth, which is another long-standing saying, that dreams are, are froth. Now, in Greece, so there's various discourses which, in our society and every other society, pronounce on the importance or the 
insignificance of dreams. In Greece, what you have, they are, you know, so, so there are debates about the importance, but I would say, you know, dreams occupy, uh, on standard, you know, a, a, a greater, higher level of importance than they do here. There are several discourses that define them, you know, that, that contest each other a little bit, or collude, and sometimes hybridize with each other, and which I talked about a bit during the lectures. The first and grassroots significance and uh, popular understanding of dreams is that they predict the future. That when you see dreams, there are particular symbols that you see in them, which are very standard and very evident symbols, like seeing yourself um, uh, drinking a glass of water, seeing the color red, uh, seeing snakes, which does not have a Freudian meaning at all. Snakes, mm -hmm. everybody knows this, this is a dream key or a dream dictionary sort mm -hmm. of approach. If you see a snake in a dream, it means an enemy. If you see a bus in a dream, it means a coffin. If you see a wedding, it means a funeral. So there are these very standard, um, very standard motifs with very standardized um, interpretations of what they mean, uh, which many, many people know just by heart. They, they are part of a common shared culture that's internalized by people. So I'd say there's between 10 and 20 symbols that almost all Greeks, all 11 million of them, would, if you threw them out in a, in a conversation in Crete or in Epirus in northern Greece, they would agree snakes mean enemies. It's just known. And it means that enemies are going to, something's going to happen to you in the future involving an enemy or that you're dealing with an enemy. So they predict action down the road. That's, that is the grassroots understanding of dreaming and dreams, and it goes back to antiquity. It's a very long tradition. And these dream books circulate, and you can buy them very cheaply, and little, they're printed in annual almanacs and people. So it circulates between an oral and a written tradition. Now, the other, uh, one of the other main approaches to dreams is through the church, and that dreams can involve visions of saints, or of holy crosses, or of other kind of relics, or uh, holy, holy um, symbols of the church. They can appear in your dreams, and basically what's implicit is that the saints or God are communicating with you through these dreams, which are in a Christian register. And they can tell you what to do in the sense of, you need to start a religious movement, you need to preach this message to the people, the people around you are are, have lapsed into sinfulness and you need to tell them again to be more holy and not blaspheme and things like that. In the material that I was covering for my lectures, the people dreamt of holy icons, of Christian icons, you know, which are the paintings of saints on, basically on wood, and that they had been buried in the earth and the dreams instructed them to dig them up and to start a pilgrimage and to build a church of the Panagia, which is the Virgin. So these were also prophetic dreams. They were foretelling the future. But I'm interested, uh, within the Christian discourse, uh, can anybody have these dreams and then it's valid for them to share with the community and then for this to be acted upon? Or uh, can only certain people, um, I don't know, saying more saintly people or, or people who are cleansed of sins or something uh, mm -hmm. along those lines, can they, uh, who's who is, uh, who, who is a candidate for having mm. these uh, visions? Can anybody be this person or not? Yeah. Well, the church, in terms of, of kind of its, its 
not exactly doctrine, but it's it's mature thinking that's been expressed in writings over and over again by uh, by clerics and monks and so on. Is that the more you cultivate your own spirituality, the more likely it is that you will receive divine messages from from the good um, figures, from the holy figures, from Christ or from the Panagia or from a saint. And that those who are not quite as cultivated might receive deceptive images that are from the devil. And the church um, attributes to itself, you know, takes appropriates to itself the responsibility for determining when somebody crops up with a dream and they say, oh, saint, uh, Anthony came to me in a dream and told me to do this. Not just anybody is allowed, you know, to say that in the marketplace, as it were, and and be believed and have authority. They need to pass, you know, the church needs to comment on this. So a spiritual confessor or, or an experienced priest will need to kind of discuss this with the person mm. and try to establish whether they can validate it as, as a vision that they're endorsing or whether they think it's a kind of um, deceptive vision of the devil. And the churches obviously can't allow just everybody in society to crop up and say, I'm speaking with the voice of the, of the holy uh, saints and I'm telling you the church has to change because it can attack the whole power structure mm -hmm. of the church if they <laughs> want it that way. So the church has lots of get-out clauses and mechanisms for invalidating dreams that they don't want. So they're not just scrutinizing. So between between you and me, Anna, what they're not just saying, uh, was this person really pure and could that have been the devil? They're saying, what is a political message here and do we do we think that we can allow it? Is it too threatening to us? If someone's saying, I had a dream and it says that the bishop and the whole Holy Synod have to be dissolved tomorrow, they will probably figure out a way to, dissolve, to, 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 to discredit that dream. Um, all right. <laughs> um, so you were telling us that you told us in the lectures, and you mentioned just now that uh, uh, during your well, your field work uh, mm -hmm. was based on on dreams that people had uh, in this village of Koronos uh, right. on the island of Naxos, uh, first in the 1830s, then in the 1930s. And both times, the dreams were about buried Orthodox icons. And they forecasted that should the icons be found, this would bring uh, a more economically prosperous time uh, for the island. So on one hand, we have these forecasts, which uh, kind of associate us with the orientation towards the future. And, uh, and on the, the icons, on the other hand, and generally, it told us that the dreams had uh, very historical plots. So they raised historical questions mm -hmm. and, and uh, carry a very strong connotation to the past. Uh, how did uh, then the past and the future, in a way, uh, coalesce uh, within these dreams? Right. And, and why why did this uh, happen when it did? Right, right. That was really that's really the crux of what I'm putting together and talking about. Is that yes, these dreams they were digging up buried materials, which as artifacts had an historical past, which they became interested in and developed. Um, extensive stories about the people who brought these objects. And parallel things have happened in other parts of Greece where equally you've got very developed historical stories about the people who brought them and what they were doing and how those things got there. But at the same time, tied into that, preparatory to getting, finding these icons, there's prediction 
that if you dig here, you will find it. So, and, and if you find it, then the whole future will be more blessed. So they've got their futurity and their, and their history, you know, kind of in some kind of essential relation to each other. And that was the part I was most interested in theorizing in this study. And what I was hoping to really offer is, is, is a, a way of conceptualizing this, a new, a new kind of theoretical approach what, to, an, to what is really a new object that's not uh, this, this kind of past future and present, I call it a past, present, future orientation, mm -hmm. where the past and the future are being brought in to change the present and to guide the present and to make sense of a present. And the present um, in the two main times that you mentioned when they had dreams was one when they were under considerable pressure because on the one hand they had been uh, just incorporated into the Greek state and their mineral resources had been nationalized. So that was, you know, they were dispossessed rather than um, enfranchised when they became citizens. And the other time they were right in the teeth of the Great Depression and they export emery. They dig up this heavy stone called emery, uh, which they have to ship in large, large quantities to make money. It's a, it's a raw natural resource. And during the Depression you just can't sell that kind of thing. So both times they were under political and economic pressure. And... I say that that created a sort of existential crisis for them, whether their community could continue to exist and whether life as they knew it could continue. And uh, in existence, as I was viewing it in the kind of existentialist framework, um, human being is expressible as a relationship to time. That is a crucial thing about human being. Uh, all of us at any given moment are looking in the future for what we're going to do next, you know, where we're going to have lunch or how we're going to get, how we're going to pass our master's thesis or something like that, where we'll get a job and try to position ourselves for a future. Uh, we're standing in a present trying to think how to go into the future and we're drawing on the past, the resources and models that we could get from the past. So this is the human predicament. And what I'm saying is in a position of anxiety, this becomes very salient. And in the mode of dreaming, this becomes almost this becomes visible and expressed, so that the dreams are expressions of the human temporal predicament of existence, at the same time as they are attempts to establish a course of action when there is no obvious course of action, when you've just been disenfranchised and says, if you you've just lost your job, what do you do? Mm -hmm. They've been they've been lowered and and plunged into anxiety about the future. And they generated these remarkable visions of the saints telling them to dig. So whether or not, you know, we can talk about whether it was successful and these things were not immediately successful and in some cases they really objectively, from our perspective in hindsight, were not successful at mm -hmm. all. But it gave them something to do and they, mm -hmm. they, and, and it, they were digging their values and they were expressing their values and digging and digging for um, this remarkable um, symbol of their values, an icon of the saint. Who would who would bless them? So so the dreams gave them agency, I would argue. But you know, if we can say one one more thing about that, mm -hmm. that was in the very kernel of action, in a very in a kind of moment of fla uh, a moment that was like a flash of insight, or a flash of illumination, as it was often referred to by the people, and as various theorists referred to 
it's, it's just this kind of blink moment of seeing a vision and getting a first kind of gestalt where a whole image comes to you, which is a kind of, a kind of experience that you have in dreams. The dreams are very visual and you don't know exactly where they come from. They just burst in upon you. You don't intend to, and very, very rarely do you intend to, and are you able to control the dream. So it's where your own sort of existential temporality bursts in on you into an imaginative framework. And it generates imagery which concerns the future, the past, and the present, all at the same time. But once it, once it generates that image in that flashpoint, that those, those images lie around, or the artifacts that they find then come to light. And then a secondary process of rumination and further dreaming gets drawn in um, to speculate further and to create the stories uh, using something between something verging on an historical imagination to then do this job of saying where did these things come from mm -hmm, and who were mm -hmm. the people who brought them. So historical consciousness is kind of activated in this moment, is activated by the temporal flash point of the dream, and it's and it's. Um, is driven further by further dreaming about the past. So the agency is uh, then in the in the kind of imaginative uh, interaction with with your present reality through the dreams, exactly. and then uh, and then the whole community participates in this when the dreams are discussed yes. uh, in public, uh, and so together the people then construct a common view of some future that they wish for, and then they acted upon it. Um, but as you told us, uh, in the end they ended up uh, looking for, they ended up uh, participating in a very ritualistic activity in the end, in a way, as you said, uh, to, to kind of, they, they didn't directly really face the problem of the economic depression, mm -hmm. but instead they immersed themselves uh, in this activity of digging up the icon and discussing it. Uh, so then it seems that uh, the consequences, I mean, that the dreaming was then just uh, very therapeutic uh, for the community more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, is this a bit of a functionalist view here, or um, not? The, the, dream was, the dream was therapeutic, although I, 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 to a certain degree, in ways that they weren't quite aware were therapeutic. It wasn't, it wasn't as if, um, you know, they'd consciously set it as a therapy. They they actually intended it to take them forward into the next um, epoch of their existence, you know, that, that, that the world as they knew it would actually change in a mm -hmm. major way. So it, it wasn't really about a return, it wasn't so mechanistic as that. They were under pressure, you know, there are, there are certain, uh, you know, outlines here that are similar to, you know, the outlines that would um, lead to a functionalist analysis. But there's no, there's no supposition in my analysis, or nor is it kind of borne out, that doing this then enabled them to return to a status quo. Mm -hmm. But the stressors of you know, economic pressure and the fear of the future, you know, were similar to what you know, you know, could be the beginning of a witchcraft accusation that could then be functionalistically. Um, dealt with so that the society could re you know, remove the, the stress of the offending person or a dysfunctional relationship and make it functional again. In this case it was very much more open-ended and the people insofar, it's very, you know, it diverges then dramatically from a functionalist analysis because the, as we were saying the dreams themselves were speculating on, on, a, very on a dynamic past and future, a past and a present moving into a future mm -hmm. 
So they were, um, they were speculating on the opposite of stasis, on the opposite of returning to the status quo, and they were thinking about movement through time, you know, at least in, in, their, in their imagery. And life in the village never did go back you know, to, to what it was in either case. So the dreams became an engine and a source of agency for keeping moving, actually. Mm -hmm. And they became, in my analysis, as part of the building block of an historical, dynamic, um, anthropological analysis, rather than one in which um, things get sorted out, everybody goes back to business mm -hmm. as usual. So do we have usual. then here tradition and change as kind of two sides of the same coin and uh, you know, within one process, one historicity? That is the problem of uh, agency at any time, is tradition and change. That each of us, even at the microcosmic level of individuals, we have all of us, and this is Bourdieu's sort of theory of practice, mm -hmm. is that we have all of this habitus from the past, which occasionally, not every day, I mean, every, on a good day, so on an average day, you go through all of these kinds of practices that you've done a hundred times before, nothing has to change. So tradition succeeds in kind of just replicating itself, and you go on automatic pilot. But at other times, you meet new challenges, and those are, you know, it's banal to say everything's existential, and I, everything is, but I'm not interested in, and I can't be interested in everything, just every moment. The real moments of where, where an existential analysis apply for me are those moments when you are singled out uh, by a challenge, singled out by history, if mm -hmm. you like that expression, where you've met something that you've not seen before. You're encountering a circumstance that that's going to necessitate some change, some innovation. And agency, for me, is really the question of what you're going to do, what choice will you make. Not, as for many other theorists of agency, how successful were you, you know, so that agency is bound up with a measurement of, well, they got a movement going, or they changed the political structure, so they had agency, and if they hadn't been successful, they didn't have agency. For me, it's, it's actually doing something and not doing anything at all is not having agency. Mm -hmm. So they didn't necessarily have a very, you know, the most effective or, you know, for, from an efficiency, you know, econo econo economically minded person, you know, the most appropriate and economically realistic response, but they had a response that gave them, you know, that made them do something. All right. So then, the dreams were because you did. So you, you did uh, work on dreams in relation to all this. Then the, the dreaming uh, was an example of this. The dreams were like existential statements in a way, mm -hmm. I suppose. The dreams were windows on to the existential condition okay. of both reasoning, uh, not reasoning, imagining. I think is a better word. Mm -hmm. To to the are windows on to the, the existential predicament and the imaginative turns that are taken inside of that predicament. And as a byproduct, because that predicament is a very temporal, temporalized predicament, they throw up, you could equally do a study of prophecy from this kernel mm -hmm. that I'm isolating. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do a study of historicity, of, his, of, you know, to focus on the past. But the important thing is to see that this pastness and their attempt to historicize is not independent from their sense of the future. And, and so prophecy and, his, and history mm -hmm. go, are going together. 
Um, so you use you use a lot of uh, existential uh, concepts uh, in in your work, and also from, you know you, you draw quite a lot from phenomenology. How did this um, come to be? How did you come come to this? And is this uh, maybe going towards a more ontologically interested anthropological inquiry? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, great question. Um, it's a, it's. Um, I would yes. I, it's how I got into this is that. Someone told me that Michel Foucault's first article ever, first publication as a young scholar, was about dreaming. Mm -hmm. And it was, in fact, the preface to a tract called Dream and Existence by the uh, existential psychoanalyst Binswanger, Ludwig Binswanger. And I just said, I have to read this, you know, for all the obvious reasons. I'm interested in dreams, and Foucault is amazing, so I'm going to read this. <laughs> and that was how I got interested in Foucault's, you know, everybody in you know, France was deeply interested in existential ideas around 1950-55, when he wrote those in 1954. Heidegger was very important, Heidegger had a huge influence on Sartre and so on. But um, it was that, and that alerted me to Binswanger's writings, and and to to their approach to dreaming, which didn't um, they didn't buy into all of the regressive part of Freud, which you know when you dream you're regressing into your own past, and that the, the unconscious is is essentially a a form of thought which is regressive. You enter into a more primary and, and earlier um, state of of um, thinking, which is part of your own development. And they said, you know, dreams are, are what you are. Dreams are what you are in the moment, and they are expressions of being. And so that opens, and I thought that was very germane for an anthropology, and I thought an anthropology can really work with that, mm -hmm. because you're looking at what people are doing, and you, as, as an anthropologist, you know, involved in the synchronic, at least through field work, you can see the conditions, or, or historically, as I've been working sometimes, you can create and recreate the conditions under which people are living and the, people, and the, and the um, preconditions for the dream of, which relates to those circumstances of, of existence and recast them. And, that many, and so, so Binswanger and his school are quite interesting, although I can only use them so much because they work on a very individualistic, psychological and psychoanalytic framework. They're interested in really individual dreams. But they're a fascinating premise and they're very inspiring for anthropology because you can have dreams of people who um, they're really afraid to go to sleep or they, their dream is that they won't wake up in the morning. Their dream is that they have no future. Mm -hmm. And there's so much of what goes, you know, what is, in, what is um, the subject of psychoanalysis of Freud uh, can be recast in terms of problems of temporality. It's the problem of the past that won't leave you in the present, the problem of anxiety, which is which is fretting about the future. These are, these are very central and very predominating human problems. Um, and anxiety is probably one of the central sources of, of dreams. And as... as um, you know, I take that on authority of, of, of dream lab researchers as well, who study the brain and the, and the way the brain functions. That um, the anxi anxiety <clears throat> is very, very often um, one of the motivating features or the central concern of dreams. 
Thank you very much. It was really quite fascinating, and thank you for um, discussing with me and being our guest. Thank you.